Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from sccenglish.ie, the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. This particular BOO is an introduction to a series of short podcasts uh, of at most five minutes on the elements of poetry, which I'll be calling the patterns of poetry, a term used for our Irish Leaving Certificate in English, and which is a useful one. Poetry is highly patterned, and if you're studying it, you need to be alert hyper-aware even, of its effects and techniques. It's created as the most intense form of expression, by poets who write and then repeatedly rewrite their work. It demands and deserves close attention. And this is not to reduce poetry to a kind of tick list. Whoops, there goes alliteration. Wee, I just spotted personification. What matters in poetry in the end is much deeper, and I'm not going to cut a horse apart to see what makes it live just to give some easily accessible talks on elements of the art. These will range from technical matters, such as the aforesaid alliteration, to much bigger issues like imagery and tone. At the moment I don't have any idea how many there will be, but at an ambitious guess there might be 30 or so over the course of this academic year. So that's a kind of deliberate self-challenge. The first talk will follow this introduction immediately after, and it will be on the matter of poem's titles. In no particular order after this, I'll be thinking about metaphor, simile, rhyme, rhythm, genres, such as the sonnet and the ode, personification, punctuation, enjambement, otherwise known as line breaks, key moments in poems, the motivation of poetry, tone, and more. I'm certainly not aiming to be thorough or comprehensive here, who could be in under five minutes, just to send listeners away with two or three thoughts that might stick in your mind. In each case, I'll refer to one or two, maybe even three, poems. These are just bites, not whole meals. I'll mostly be using poems which are on the Irish Leaving Certificate course in English, which is plenty to get going along with, since it includes Yeats, Dickinson, Wordsworth, Heaney, Frost, Hopkins... Kavanagh, Plath, Larkin, and a lot more, but every now and then I'm sure I'll stray into other poems. And you certainly don't need to be studying that course to get something out of these talks. I hope that they're accessible and not too technical. If there are links or resources I mentioned, they'll be on the equivalent date in our blog, www.sccenglish.ie. You can also follow us on Twitter at sccenglish. So I hope you'll join in every now and then uh, over the coming weeks and months and coming up soon, as they say, the subject of titles. This has been Julian Gurdum from SCC English. This is the end of this first boo introduction to the patterns of poetry. Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from sccenglish.ie, St. Columbus College English Department. And if you listen to the first in this series of Patterns of Poetry, you'll get an idea of the plan. A series of very short talks about elements of poetry across the next year or so. This one is on the title of a poem. What do you first see when you look at a poem? Many people presumably plunge straight into the opening lines. The aim of this talk is to suggest that you might spend more time looking at the title and thinking about it. Titles are too often assumed and unexamined. Some poems don't have titles at all, which might itself be significant, such as Emily Dickinson's refusal to pin a meaning on her lines. But when a poet does choose a title, he or she is making a highly significant choice.
Even titles which seem unexceptional or obvious are worth looking at. You should always consider titles the poet could have and didn't choose. So take Elizabeth Bishop's great poem, The Fish. Now that would seem to be a title entirely functional and unworthy of notice, especially since once the poem gets going, she describes this fish in immaculate and colourful detail. But let's look more closely. The first line of the poem is, I caught a tremendous fish. And lurking in that first line is the little indefinite article, A. I caught a tremendous fish. The story of this poem is how a fish becomes the fish, of how a poet becomes increasingly absorbed by and involved in the creature, to such an extent that she even at one point goes inside it in her imagination. Seamus Heaney has said that, quote, Bishop's famous gift for observation is more than a habit of simply watching. Her detachment is chronic, and yet the combination of attentiveness and precision which she brings to bear upon things is so intense that the detachment almost evaporates. Quite so, it becomes the fish. Other titles actually draw attention to their own significance. So take Robert Frost's poem, Out Out, which also has quotation marks around it. If you have a reasonable knowledge of Shakespeare, you know that this comes from Macbeth. But if you don't have that, you should pick up it's a statement of significance that requires some research. The phrase, of course, comes from Macbeth's great speech at the end of that play, when he says, Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player. The phrase, out, out, never actually appears in the poem. But we've already been alerted by the title that this will be a poem about the transience of life about how it is really just a brief candle. And the first two lines of the poem immediately alert us. The buzzsaw snarled and rattled in the yard and made dust and dropped stove-length sticks of wood. You can't read the title and then that first line, referring to a snarling buzzsaw, without knowing that that saw is likely to do something terrible to a human being. So in this case, unlike in The Fish, the title quite explicitly foreshadows what will happen in the poem. It's a big sign with a pointing finger. And then the end of the poem, famously abrupt and seemingly brutal, enacts the central idea of life's brevity. When the boy is mortally wounded, Frost writes, No one believed. They listened at his heart, little, less, nothing, and that ended it. No more to build on there. And they, since they were not the one dead, turned to their affairs. The poem is over just like the boy's life, snuffed out quickly. Between the apparent blandness of Bishop's title, The Fish, and Frost's flashing neon, Out Out, there's a myriad of approaches to titles. Just make sure to pay them some attention. They are often worth it. This was Julian Gerdham from sccenglish.ie. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from St. Columbus College in Dublin. Look at our blog, sccenglish.ie, for more. And this is the Patterns of Poetry number three. This time I'm talking about alliteration. I'm not going to do this series alphabetically, but we'll start with A for alliteration. This technique is something that seems to excite many pupils of poetry. It's nice and easy to spot, so easy in fact that it seems almost like bird-watching at times. Ooh, look, there's a willow warbler. But when you're thinking about and analysing a poem, you do need to think beyond mere observation and consider exactly what alliteration does, just what its purpose is in a poem. 
the definition is easy. The repeated use of letters at the start of words or syllables. If you want to be technical, there is consonantal alliteration, big bad boy, or vocalic alliteration, a vowel, such as alphabetic alliteration, whatever that may be. But let's stop being technical and look at a poem. The most highly alliterative great poet of all is surely the Jesuit priest Jared Manley Hopkins, who incidentally died in Dublin and is buried just a few miles from where I'm talking now in Glasnevin Cemetery. Hopkins was particularly excited by sound in poetry and was strongly influenced by Old and Middle English, in which alliteration is often spectacularly dominant. An example is the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Listen now for the key letter in each alliterative line in Simon Armitage's recent modern English translation. It was Christmas at Camelot, King Arthur's court, where the great and good of the land had gathered, all the righteous lords of the ranks of the round table, quite properly carousing and revelling in pleasure. Hopkins took alliteration to an extreme, and there are few more extreme examples in English poetry than his great sonnet The Windhover, subtitled To Christ Our Lord. Hopkins called it the best thing I ever wrote, which is not quite the language he used to use in his poetry. So here is the extraordinary first sentence, driven along by its alliteration, as well as its rhyme scheme, in which every line rhymes on the ing sound. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight, dauphin, dapple dawn, drawn falcon, and his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow-bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind. This really is alliteration, freighted and fruity as a good Christmas cake, being used for a powerful purpose. The sweeping M, D, R and W letters drive the sentence towards its most distinctive sound, the hissing S of on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow-bend. That alliterative S is, and here's your second technical term of this talk, called sibilance, a word which pleasingly explains itself by its own sound. And what is that powerful purpose? It's the exhilarating recreation of a bird of prey, which is itself a metaphor for Christ. Hopkins doesn't just use alliteration for ecstasy, in the dark sonnets written towards the end of his life, he writes, Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs wilder ring, in which that spitting P sound expresses his spiritual bitterness. Hopkins's language pushes words to an extreme, moving it in fact towards the condition of music. The mere meaning of words isn't enough for him. Their sound needs to do a lot of work too. Hopkins may be an extremist in terms of alliteration, but he's a good place to start when thinking about it. Few poets have produced such powerful poems. Hello, this is Julian Godham from sccenglish.ie, the English department in St. Columbus College, Dublin, in Ireland. This is the fourth Patterns of Poetry talk. The last time it was 
alliteration, previously titles of poems, the first one was an introduction, and today it's the turn of personification. One of the most powerful tools that poetry uses is metaphor, a topic so wide that I'll probably have to chop it up into several talks over the next few months. Metaphor is a figure of speech and a way of comparing two things, no more than that right now. But one subsection, as it were, of metaphor is today's topic. Personification is a term whose meaning is easy to remember, since the key word is incorporated into it. An object, a thing, is treated as though it were a person, a creature. To illustrate this, I'm going to use Patrick Kavanagh's 1934 poem, Shanko Duff. A similar warning here to the last talk on alliteration. Analyzing poetry isn't a version of plane spotting, taking out your notebook and jotting down the details of the 230 flight from Amsterdam. You need to see why a poet is using personification, for what purpose, to what effect. So here's the first stanza of Kavanagh's Shanko Duff. My black hills have never seen the sun rising. Eternally they look north towards Armagh. Lot's wife would not be salt if she had been incurious as my black hills that are happy when dawn whitens glass drummond chapel. Here we see lines suffused with personification. The black hills, possessively called my black hills, are treated as people. They have never seen the sun rising. They look north. They are incurious. They are even happy when dawn comes. By the end of that first stanza, we understand, subconsciously at least, since the personification might just fly in under the radar, to keep up the plane spotting analogy, that Kavanagh has a strong sense of intimacy with this apparently unpromising object of affection. And this is the second stanza. My hills hoard the bright shillings of March, while the sun searches in every pocket. They are my Alps, and I have climbed the Matterhorn, with a sheaf of hay for three perishing calves in the field under the big fourth of Rock Savage. Personification continues here as his hills hoard the bright shillings of March, presumably little pockets of water. He then writes with hyperbole, a term for a later talk, saying that they are my Alps, and concludes in the final stanza, the sleety winds fondle the rushy beards of Shanko Duff. More personification. So just what is the purpose of this literary technique for Kavanagh in this poem? The poet's love for the place, black, sleety, wintry, hungry, burns off the page partly because of personification. That first possessive word, my, my black hills, sets off the poem. Shanko Duff has a whiff of challenge. Look, this is what I love, and it may not be a beautiful woman or a Caribbean beach, but it's mine, and it's almost a friend, a person to me. The tone, another talk on this one sometime, the tone is affectionate, but also quite knowing and ironic. I have climbed the Matterhorn, he writes defiantly, challenging us to say, <clears throat> but it's only a little hill in Monaghan. The personification drives the fundamental emotion within and the impulse behind the poem, love.
Hello, this is Julian Gertham from St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. This is the fifth Patterns of Poetry talk, short talks. Previous ones include uh, personification, alliteration, titles in poetry. And this is going to focus on the idea of the symbol. Poetry needs to push language to its limits. It's a form of language used by people when they really need the operative word to express strong, complex or vital thoughts and feelings. So it needs to reach beyond the functional, the mundane, the ordinary in language. And one way it does this is by using symbols. Although symbolism is narrowly defined as a 19th century movement in France, and although in this talk I'm going to use a poem by Yeats, who was influenced by that movement, the use of symbols is common in all poetry and all languages. Broadly speaking, a symbol stands for or suggests something else, often something abstract. It's a form of metaphor, and its etymological origins are helpful. It comes from the ancient Greek, meaning to throw together. As I said, the great Irish poet W.B. Yeats was a powerful user of symbols, and we see this in a memorable poem in the sequence Meditations in Time of Civil War. It's number six, The Stairs Nest by My Window. The sequence meditates, as it says, on the Irish Civil War of 1922-24. to And this poem sees the writer in the tower home, Tour Ballylee, he bought in County Galway. A tower might be seen as a symbol of security, both for a writer and a father and husband. But in this poem there is no cosiness, only a clear-sighted and appalled vision of the reality of war, which literally goes past the door. The opening stanza reads, The bees build in the crevices of loosening masonry, and there the mother birds bring grubs and flies. My wall is loosening, honey bees come build in the empty house of the stair. This is vividly evoked. It's not, however, merely a description, but of course highly symbolic. The masonry, like the society beyond the home, is loosening. His own wall is loosening. Yeats's plea is repre repeated as a refrain, a later talk will discuss this technique, to the honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. The empty house, or rather nest, is a symbol of a country tearing itself murderously apart, and of a way of life that Yeats knew was doomed. This theme is treated more gently in his poem The Wild Swans at Cool, which is the subject of a much longer podcast I did last October which can be heard by clicking through on today's post. The bees, sweet, productive, collective, become a symbol of what we do not have. In the second and third stanzas, he describes explicitly the bleak reality of civil war, including the dead young soldier, trundled down his road in his blood. And in the fourth, he summarises by saying that we Irish had fed the heart on fantasies, the hearts grown brutal from the fair, more substance in our enmities than our love. O oh, honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. The whole sequence, Meditations, begins with the poem Ancestral Houses, and its opening lines are Surely among a rich man's flowering lawns, amid the rustle of his planted hills, life overflows without ambitious pains. 
and that's an image undercut by that opening word, surely, which seeks reassurance. One of Yeats's great qualities was an ability to marry the concrete and the abstract in memorable ways. The swans of The Wild Swans at Cool are emblems of a threatened elegance, and the fumbling in a greasy till in his poem September 1913 captures the money-grubbing class he viciously criticises in that scathing work. Yeats knew the power of symbols. Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from St. Columbus College in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, visit our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. This is the sixth in a series of talks about the patterns of poetry. All of these are under five minutes. If you'd like an introduction, please listen to the first one. And this talk is about onomatopoeia. This might well turn out to be the hardest one to spell, but it's an easy enough concept to grasp. Onomatopoeic words are those whose sound enacts or imitates their meaning. So in English we recognise bang, pop, crash, rattle, sizzle and so on. Stephen Pinker, in his book The Language Instinct, writes that, quote, Since a word is a pure symbol, the relation between its sound and its meaning is utterly arbitrary. He goes on to point out that onomatopoeia is unfortunately not consistent across languages, and that whereas in English pigs go oink, Apparently in Japanese they go boo-boo. Well, never mind, we're discussing English here. Onomatopoeic words appeal to the ear and can be particularly vivid and memorable. Poets use them for special effect. An example of this is in the poem A Constable Calls by Seamus Heaney from his 1975 book North. Heaney holds back his onomatopoeic word right to the end. The poem describes the vaguely threatening visit by a constable a member of the Protestant, Loyalist-dominated Royal Ulster Constabulary, to Heaney's rural Catholic nationalist home when he was a boy. The policeman comes on his bicycle to check out Seamus's father's tillage returns. The boy looks on wide-eyed with nervousness, arithmetic and fear, imagining the black hole in the barracks. And then in the last lines this happens. A shadow bobbed in the window. He was snapping the carrier spring over the ledger. His boot pushed off, and the bicycle ticked, ticked, ticked. So the poem ends with this example of onomatopoeia. The repeated ticked imitates the sound of the bicycle as it heads off. I've been saying through these talks that what matters is showing how these techniques are used. There's no point in merely spotting them. So why does Heaney use this word? ticked three times. For a start, although it's written by an adult, Heaney's perspective in the poem is his boyhood self. Decades later, this incident has stuck in his mind, and the repeated ticked is like three dots at the end of the poem. Technical term alert here, it's an ellipsis. The constable may have gone, but the memory didn't go. The most obvious association of this word is with time, with a clock or watch, and of course between the event and the poem there was a lot of time. In Northern Ireland too much of this time was filled with violence. Years after the constable called, the province erupted in the late 60s into the so-called Troubles. And this thought of course immediately calls into mind the other common association with this sound, a bomb. 
the kind of suppressed tensions written about subtly by Heaney in the poem, eventually exploded, and for 35 years Northern Ireland became a place defined by bombs and bombing. In fact, as I speak, one has just gone off in Derry, years after the Troubles seemed to end. Heaney wrote this poem at the height of the Troubles in the early to mid-70s. The ticking in a constable calls is very different from the sound in another poem in the same collection, North, the marvellous warm poem Sunlight, first part of Mossborn, Two Poems in Dedication, when he writes about his Aunt Mary. Now she dusts the board with a goose's wing, now sits broad-lapped, with whitened nails and measling shins. Here is a space again, the scone rising to the tick of two clocks. And here is love, like a tinsmith's scoop, sunk past its gleam in the meal bin. In this poem, the tick is a small punctuation of the peace and silence in the remembered kitchen. We are put into that kitchen. We can hear that tick. The rest of the collection is full of violence. Mary Heaney's kitchen becomes an emblem of a lost peacefulness. Heaney's use of onomatopoeia in a constable calls is just one example of how effective, resonant and memorable this technique can be. Hello, this is Julian Gertham from St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. In the English department, look at our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. This is the seventh in the Patterns of Poetry talks. And today I'm going to be discussing cliché. Cliché might seem an odd choice of subject for this series, and indeed it's a bit misleading to say that this talk is about cliché in poetry, in the same way previous ones have been about alliteration or onomatopoeia or the use of symbol. Cliché is the overuse of language, phrases and images, in other words, when it becomes predictable, not individual. But examining cliché is a useful way into how poetry truly works, or should work. Simply, there is no place at all in poetry for it. In fact, a good definition of poetry might be that it is the polar opposite of cliché. Poetry must be language used at its freshest, most precise, most imaginative. And in this brief talk, I'd like to look at how two poets, centuries apart, use cliché to highlight this. First of all, Shakespeare's famous sonnet, number 130, My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. This poem, celebrating the unusual beauty of his lover, builds itself on subverting and overturning cliché. His mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, the open line challengingly states. And if you're insufficiently alert, you might think that that's not being complimentary. The cliché is that your lover's eyes are bright as the sun, in which case they'd instantly drill hot holes in your face. The next line is, Coral is far more red than her lips red. Well, thankfully so, since truly red lips would be grotesque. And the cliché is to say that your loved one's voice is as melodious as a skylark swooping through a summer's meadow, or some such tosh. No, for Shakespeare, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. He adds, I grant I never saw a goddess go. Presumably a goddess floats like some sort of wispy hovercraft. But our poet says, My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. That word treads surprises us, but then immediately we realise it's simply true. 
The whole sonnet, that's a topic for a future talk, hinges on the final two lines in typical Shakespearean style. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Just listen to the exhilarated lift-off of that simple word yet. And yet, by heaven... The second poem today is Valentine, by the current British poet laureate Caroline Duffy. We read the title, and you can listen to the second of these talks on that subject, and inevitably a host of predictable images swim into our heads. Is there a more clichéd day than February the 14th in Western culture? Of course, the first words that sneak unwelcomely into our consciousness are roses are red, violets are blue, etc. Fill in the cliché such as, sugar is sweet and so are you. Duffy, however, knocks this back straight away with her first line, not a red rose or a satin heart. This isn't even grammatically a sentence. It lacks a verb and is determined by that first very insistent not. Just like Shakespeare's negative, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. And the second line comes as even more of a surprise. I give you an onion. Now we're awake. Whatever this is, it's not what we expected. And the rest of the poem goes on to justify this bizarre choice. Onions make you cry, like love. Onions can be undressed, like a lover. The loops of an onion are like a wedding ring, if you like. She writes in the middle of the poem, I am trying to be truthful. Not a cute card or a kissogram. Alliteration alert here, see talk number three. In this case, the k sound underscores her contempt for language that is not truthful. When writing a poem, you can't afford a single cliché, unless, like these two poets, you're subverting it. Every single image, every single word, and every single phrase must shine, must feel fresh, must be true. Hello and welcome to the 8th Patterns of Poetry talk. This is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. One of the most important tools poetry uses is figurative language. When you use a figure of speech, you take off from the literal truth to something more imaginative. I've already given an example of this in talk number 4, which looked at personification, and in talk five on symbols. In each case, the poets used figures of speech because they were straining to reach meaning, using language to express profound thought. You don't need figures of speech when you're putting together a telephone directory or a bus timetable. Another figure of speech, and one widely used in poetry, is the simile. Almost everyone comes to secondary school able to spot this as a comparison using like or as. This is a reasonable working definition, though really you should add using than as well. Similes make us look at things in a fresh way. In the last talk, number seven, I examined cliché and discussed how Shakespeare in Sonnet 130 mocks the clichéd simile. He starts his sonnet, number 130, with My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. A simile can't be tired or predictable. If it is, it just doesn't do its job of making the reader see anew. 
Sylvia Plath's poem, Morning Song, makes widespread use of simile. Plath addresses her new child, starting, Love set you going like a fat gold watch. Now that's not cliché. It's fresh and grabs us from the start. On line six, she writes, We stand round blankly as walls. Followed by, I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. There's the than simile. Later, your mouth opens, clean as a cat's. And the last line reads, the clear vowels rise like balloons. In addition, the poem is packed with metaphors. A later talk, or maybe even talks, will take on this big subject. But here the baby has a bald cry and is a new statue, and Plath writes, A far sea moves in my ear. There are lots more metaphors. Her mind is generating comparisons like a factory. Hmm, not a very good simile. As I've been saying in all these talks, the important thing when examining the features, the patterning of poetry, is to show why they are used. Otherwise, you're just engaging in a sterile tick list. Make sure you connect the technique with the meaning of the poem. So, why does Plath use simile and metaphor so freely in this poem? Well, she is a brand new mother, looking at her precious new baby, with all the feelings that rush through every parent at this extraordinary moment. So she is super alert. One cry, and I stumble from bed, cow-heavy and floral, in my Victorian nightgown. She is full of wonder and fear and excitement. She reaches for poetry to express all this, and she reaches for figures of speech to go beyond the literal, to express her exhilarated hypersensitivity, and quite naturally she reaches for simile.